Hey everyone, welcome back to Ruby for All. It's Friday. Happy Friday, Julie. Happy Friday, although I guess this wouldn't be airing on a Friday, but it's no, Friday it for won't. us. It's Friday for us though, because we are a little behind, but that's okay, because no one needs to know, but now you all do. Um, I feel like we don't have a backlog of videos, or sorry, not videos. We don't have a backlog of episodes right now. We haven't we seen each we other in like, oh, we do have one. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, one. So we're technically <laughs> ahead. Let's go. Killing what have you the game. been up to the last few weeks? I have been, we're doing a bunch of bug bashing at Podia. So that's been a lot of fun and kind of a nice change of pace. I jumped out of a plane last weekend. Saw um, that. Yeah, that was a ton of fun. Yeah, I went skydiving for anyone who doesn't follow me on Twitter, which you should at Andrew M. Codes. But I went skydiving last weekend to test whether or not I was afraid of heights anymore. And I am not. So it was fun. Amazing. And doing some random, you know, code exploration on the side with Storybook and some ideas I had around Storybook. And yeah. So what about you? Wait, what's Storybook? Storybook is a tool for developing components, typically for React. And it's like a visualization tool. It also has a bunch of really cool stuff baked into it, like we're not baked in, but they're plugins like accessibility and like controls. And so basically you get like a dashboard. It's got all of the components that you've defined in it. And you can like toggle like active or like toggle like the options in them and stuff. And, and it's really great for kind of design and architecture of components. And there is a Ruby gem for integrating it with view component, but I don't like it. And I am like trying to test out this theory I have about it because the way, I mean, we're not going to be talking about this today, but the, the way it works right now for Ruby is that you basically have to write, like use this custom DSL to like define your stories. And then it's like, it writes them out to JSON and then Storybook picks that up. And it's just kind of like, it's very different from the way everyone else uses Storybook where they just like write in the components kind of in like a, in a JavaScript file and then Storybook just knows to pick that up. And my idea was like in Ruby, you can compile things down to like, so if I have that js.erb file, like that when it gets evaluated, it, it's just a JavaScript file with the ERB having been in, you know interpolated inside of it. And so I was like, what if I just wrote all my storybook stories in javascript but javascript erb where instead of like doing all this complicated crap where i'm like using dsls to like render the like components and all that crap i just literally write the component render call like i normally would and then rails converts that into javascript with the code already inside of it the way it should be and it's just it's it's hard to explain on podcasts especially if you're not familiar with the way storybook works or components or all that but it's kind of cool so yeah, maybe we can talk about more of that in the future. I was going to say I'm a little lost. Yeah, maybe that's for the listeners. If you're not aware of what Storybook is, that's your homework. Go look that up. And in the future, we'll, I'm, we'll definitely do more about components. So we can definitely touch on Storybook or Lookbook, which is a Ruby-focused one that's a little bit native, more native and works better in Rails which just came out with version 1.0. So yeah, but nice. it kind of ties into what we're talking about today, which is CI, CD, security checking, linting, stack analysis, code coverage, all these kind of things that we're using as developers to kind of automate some of the stuff that is important to do, but that we don't want to have to do manually, like 
you know, ensuring that our pat like code is matching the pattern of our styled guide and, you know, making sure tests have been run and that they're passing and that they pass on the right architecture, right? It doesn't just work on my machine and all that fun stuff. So before we get into it, Julie, do you write RSpec or mini test? RSpec. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, but uh, I, I've seen this debate on Twitter. Why do you say good? <laughs> because all right, I wrote mini tests for the I have written mini tests for the majority of my career. And as someone who didn't know RSpec until like the last year, it's just better. <laughs> it's just so much better. And I don't want to hear any of this nonsense in the comments about, oh, but mini test is just Ruby. Yeah. So is RSpec. It's just they it's it's just a DSL. Like, come on. It's I don't know. People like to argue about things, but I commonly find that the people arguing about them are not actually using them. And they're just like, they just think the grass is greener on the other side. And then I'm telling you right now, it's not. It's so much easier to write tests, thorough tests in RSpec than it is in mini test. Yep. That's my flaming hot take. And if you come for me on Twitter, you're going to get smoke. So typically for a continuous integration, before we talk about I'm going to leave the continuous deployment kind of stuff out of it because I think we're going to do an episode about deployment stuff in the future. But continuous integration is this idea of where I push up my code like to GitHub, for example. And then like there are several things that I want to do, like quality checks, basically, before I merge that into our main code base, right? Like I want to make sure all the tests are passing. I want to make sure that I haven't introduced like some weird style where like I'm using single quotes, but everyone else in the code base is using double quotes for something like that. Or that my, maybe that my PR is like a thousand lines long. It's like too big. And like, there's just some things that we want to do after we push up code and we want to run continuously to make sure it integrates with the rest of the code base. Also security stuff security checks, which are important, but not many people are doing, I find. Wait, so it can actually check that you're doing too many line changes of code and what happens when it alerts you of that? Nothing happens. I mean, well, it, something could happen, right? Like it really depends on how you set it up. So, because there's such, there's such a wide variety of tools and techniques to create this architecture. Uh, so you could have to do something but right now, like in Podia, like if I have like a massive, massive PR, we have a, a little bot that will just comment on my PR and be like, whoa, dude, that's a lot of lines of code. Maybe you could break this down into smaller PRs if you like like your teammates and stuff and value the time of the person who has to review this monstrosity, you know? So just like things that like I may not be thinking about in the moment, but like I shouldn't have to think about, right? Because we could just have a tool think about that. It's also yeah. great for people who are maybe new on the team and they don't know certain things like, oh, well, we prefer to use single quotes, for example, for whatever reason. And so like, if I'm coming into an organization like that and like, I don't know that, then it's really, really helpful like to like not waste the time of my reviewers by having like these checks in place. So that's what a lot of it kind of comes down to is like removing like the human component from it so that you can ensure that nothing's getting missed and that your deployments are running smoothly and your code is, you know, all in sync and stuff and a happy, happy code base, happy life. So curious now, what is a good sized PR? What might seem too big? I'm sure it's very company slash team dependent, but. Yeah, it's can be quite nuanced, right? Because like, for instance, I could have 
a humongous PR, but what if like part of it is VCR cassettes, which are just YAML files that are stored in your test that, you know, like replay how certain API calls were run without having to run them like in your CI suite. And like, what if I'm, what if like, I've actually only changed four files of code, but I've changed 20 tests, you know, or something like that. So there's a lot of nuance in that like thing, but basically, I don't know, something like that doesn't, I know you want to break things down and to be as atomic as possible, right? So like if I'm making a change and like it's in this one very specific part of the application, like maybe it's only backend changes, but then I go to make the changes on the front end and it ends up being like a much bigger task than I anticipated to the point where it's like taken a lot more time than the backend stuff. And so now I have like this, this change on the backend and this really big change to the front end and at some point, like those two will start to get a little conflated, especially when you look at the code, like, how does this all relate? Like, there's so many files here. I don't know what to focus on. I think actually that's probably the key of it. If it's not clear on what the focus is and it just touches so much stuff, that's when you know it's too big. It needs to be focused, atomic, try to make the smallest change possible. And I don't know, just have respect for the people who are going to have to review it, right? Like if you, like, I like to always... Well, I don't always do it, but I try to always go back and look at my PR once I push it up, like just glance at the code because I have a habit of leaving debugging statements in my code, <laughs> which you can also run CI checks for to make sure that you didn't do that. So there you go. But yeah, just like if it takes me way too long or like I'm getting lost reviewing my own code, like that's the perfect smell test right there for you. Like if it's too big for you, it's going to be too big for someone else. Got it. So what's the best way for if I happen to have done too much already and it's all committed, what's the best way to break it apart? It depends on your commit hygiene, really. So I, we could definitely have an episode about this. I use conventional commits, which is a kind of style guide for writing commit messages. And shout out to my coworker, Stephanie, who showed me conventional comments yesterday, which I also thoroughly enjoy. It's basically just patterns for naming and write your commit messages. And it, I, I have found that by doing that, it helps me make a lot more focused changes, right? Because like you basically prefix your commit with the purpose of like what that commit is doing. So like fix or feature or chore or performance or refactor or tests or, you know, build pipeline or what or docs or whatever so you prefix your commit message with with that that kind of like indicator and there's a specific set of them that of keywords that you can use or that the the conventional commit spec defines and so by doing that like i have found often that i'll go to commit my code and i'll be like oh wait but in, in what i'm about to commit i i basically added a feature but then i also found something that was broken and i fixed that and then I also went and updated the docs. So maybe instead of one commit, that's where I find this incredibly helpful. I'm like, okay, when I'm going to make that a commit, I'm like, wait, I'm actually only going to commit these files right now. This is a, this is the feature. And then now I'm going to commit the fix for the thing. And now I'm going to commit the docs change. And so when it lines up in the Git log, it's like feature. It's just the feature changes. And then fix is just the fix file. And docs is just the like docs. And so when you're reviewing in the commit log, it looks really great. It's very clear about what's happening in each commit. And when you look at it 
on GitHub, it's also very clear, especially when you're reviewing changes and then the person comes in and adds more to like quickly like look and see like, okay, well, they added like this feature and then they fixed this and then they did this and it's just very, very clear and atomic. So back to your question about what to do if you notice your PR is too big. I think you might first decide, is this actually a problem? Like, you know, maybe it's a little big, but does it like, is the cost of breaking it apart bigger than the cost of it being big, right? Because if it's all really, really interconnected, then maybe you can't really break it down. But if it's not super, super interconnected, then maybe you can say, okay, well, fine. Like, like try to break down the task a little bit more. So like, okay, well, the, the, the overall task was to, you know, add this, you know, data table on this page. And while adding that data table, I had to add some JavaScript stuff. And then I had to, you know, wire up all the backend stuff. And so when I come into that PR, I'm like, wow, this is really big. I could think about it more so like, okay, well, this part right here where I am creating the JavaScript for the, for the table, like that could technically ship as is. I think that's what you kind of think about when you're like, is how to break it down. It's like, could this ship alone as is? If so, pull it out and then maybe pull out something else. So like only the front end changes because they're obviously not being, if it's not going to be affected by anything, then you could just ship that part. And then just the back end changes. Um, feature flags are really, really helpful for this. And I would highly recommend using something like Flipper to implement this where you're like, okay, well, in this PR, I'm going to implement all of the backend changes and I'm going to put them behind a feature flag so that I can commit this. The code will be live, but it will not be executing. So now I am free to make my next PR, which changes all the stuff in the front end and put that behind a feature flag as well. Now they're both shipped together, but they're not on. And now I could just turn them on together and, and there's no like cost or there's no breakage at that point. So that's a, that's a great way to actually implement breaking it down a little bit more. It's like, how can I, I can just hide functionality behind feature flags. And then as the, like the associated functionality is added in other PRs, then this feature flag can just be turned on to like turn on this part of the code. Cool. I haven't heard of Flipper before, and this might be a naive question, but does, can that work for both front end and back end? Like if you're using React, can React stuff be behind Flipper? I don't know. I know Flipper is like it, Flipper is a Ruby gem, but they're coming out with something called Flipper Cloud. We've actually talked to John, the creator of it, on Remote Ruby before, and I think Flipper Cloud is intended to be more language agnostic. But right now, Flipper as is is a Ruby gem, so you have to use it in Ruby. So mm -hmm. like you could use it if in the sense of like you are rendering a component or. If the feature flag is on, you're rendering a different component, right? Like if you're if you put it in the Ruby like at that level, but I don't think Flipper is the specific tool you can use there for I like adding it in the JavaScript itself. I'm there is a plethora of tools and I'm sure node modules that you could add for the JavaScript part. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. So back to the CI C D. So right now when I push up my code and I, I add this on all of my repository. I do this virtually everywhere because I like the pattern, but I'm going to talk basically about Podia just because it's kind of easy. So like right now I push a PR to Podia and the first thing it's going to do is it's, it's going to run my tests. It's going to run my system tests. 
make sure those are all passing. It's going to perform a style check. Like we're using standard RB, which is a, it's kind of like a preset set of, it's a preset configuration for RuboCop. So it's, it's basically RuboCop, but without the configuration. And so just that, that's just to make sure like I am following the right style. Like my indentation is correct. Like I'm using the correct, you know, quotes and like everything related to style, not specifically functionality. And it also like, will sometimes suggest like, Hey, you're using this specific method, but actually you should be using this method because it's faster or it's more robust or it like accounts for these Eric cases that you might not have mentioned. So using a linter like standard or RuboCop or reek or i think flay might be one like anything like that is highly recommended just to like the the absolute worst thing in the whole wide world is like when you're coming into a company and you're like okay i need to implement this feature and you're like okay well how did they implement it in other areas and you go and you look and it's like oh well this person created this feature like this and then this person did it like this and then this person did it like this and there's like there's no like fluidity there's no pattern and so you're then stuck wondering like, okay, well, how should I do it, right? Because I don't want to waste time in code review on these little style things. And so that's the big benefit of a linter or a formatter like prettier is like, I shouldn't have to think about it, right? I should just be able to write the code exactly the way I want with no semicolons. And then <laughs> I hit save and then, you know, whatever happens, happens. I don't care, right? Because I don't care, but I want to write it my way. And so a linter and formatters will really help you kind of achieve that by letting the developer write it kind of their way. But then in the end, be like, okay, but here now, now we're going to try to auto format it to the way that the team has decided it should be, right? And you can even add custom rules and all this, like the, I'm not going to get super deep into this. The other day I was digging into this, we, we were trying to upgrade a Ruby 3. And there was this big keyword argument change. And I wrote a RuboCop custom rule that auto-corrected every instance of not double splatting the arguments for hashes and stuff. Not going to get into it because it's way too complicated to explain it here. But you can do all this kind of stuff where you're like, oh, I, I want to auto-format things a certain way. I want things to be a certain way. And so these linters and tools like that can really help you take advantage of that. But so the next thing that a CI might do is security checks. Stack analysis. CodeQL is a project and a tool from GitHub that does some stuff like this. Breakman is a really popular Ruby gem for doing this. And it's basically like there are no security vulnerabilities or like ways that you can make your code unsecure that these tools have basically been documenting. And they're like, okay, so if you, I don't know, if you're using unescaped user input in the HTML, for instance, like that could be a security vulnerability. I don't, I don't have any specific off the top of my head, but it's like anything that might make your code unsecure, open you up to cross-site scripting attacks, anything like that, to like Breakman or CodeQL will like flag that down and be like, hey, like this could open you up to this type of attack or hey, like, you know, you're this is unsecure and now you're, you could possibly wind up in a timing attack or anything like that. So I think that is insanely important. And in the Planet Argon Ruby's community survey from like a year ago, the amount of developers actually doing any sort of security analysis on their code is staggeringly low. And it's kind of unfortunate because I think Rails, we all have this idea that Rails is very secure by default, which it is, but it's really easy for you to screw that up. And so, yeah, I think it's, I, I don't know. I have, I'm very like, I am very like interested in the security and like hacking and stuff like that. And so I'm just very like shocked and dismayed at the amount of people who don't really take it seriously. That's scary.
Yeah. So, but yeah, you can do all sorts of stuff like that where you're like, okay, well, I, I shouldn't have to remember the OWASP top 10 list in my head, right? Of like top security vulnerabilities. We should be able to use a tool for that and implement it in our, just to our CI workflow so that we're always ensuring that our code is secure and that I don't have to think about it and that you as my reviewer don't have to think about it. It's just like, we know, I mean, obviously like you should look for that stuff always, but it's like, I know that the majority of cases are going to be handled and checked. And that gives me some more confidence about my code. And then we have, there's a bunch of like CI tasks that the really fun ones that I enjoy writing. And these are things that are maybe not as important, but just very helpful. So like one thing is like a tool called CodeCov. I think it's called CodeCov or SimpleCov, one of those two, where it's like, hey, you added, you know, 20 files and you didn't write a single test. What the hell is up with that? You know, so it's just and what it does specifically is like it finds areas in your code that aren't tested. And so when you push up a chain, it's like, hey, well, now that you've added this code, we have all these untested parts of the code base. Like maybe you should write some tests for that. And if you then go add those tests, it's like, oh, okay, cool. Now we're and then there's things like, what if I want to send a Slack message every time I merge the main? Or what if I want to send a tweet every time I merge the main? Or, I mean, all these, or what if I want to kick off like, you know, my deployment workflows, or what if I want to automatically assign people to review it and based on these certain conditions. So that's like, once you kind of get out of like the core of like basically testing, linting security, you get in this really much broader, like a horizon of like all these really cool things that you can do to like automate portions of your workflow. That's really cool. It's very helpful, especially for someone who doesn't want to think about it. And once you have like a set of patterns, like you can kind of take your CI workflow everywhere with you, regardless of the tool. So like the couple of big companies out there doing or providing like a CI solution, and I, there are tons, but the ones that I think about are Circle CI, which I was my first love. And I still, I have like, they sent me a t-shirt after I wrote some blog posts for them. I very much like Circle CI. GitHub Actions, which is newer on the block, but I was also really big into when it first came out. I still am. I write now. I That's the sole tool that I use is GitHub Actions just because Circle CI is awesome. But like, I don't, if I'm working on like, especially for like a side project or something, like I don't want to have to switch context out of GitHub. Like if I'm already in GitHub, like I would write to consolidate things as much as possible and just not need to have another tool. Circle CI is definitely something I would use for more robust performancey things where I'm like, okay, well, you know, GitHub Actions just isn't cutting it and it's taking too long. And, and then use at Podia? we are using... A combination of GitHub Actions and Heroku CI. We use Circle CI at work, and I don't really know any other options. I mean, I guess I know the other options, but I haven't used them. Travis uh, used to be big, not anymore. What? Travis CI. Oh, I haven't heard of that. Was, I think I think it might actually be a. I don't even know if it's still around anymore. Like they 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 were very big with the Ruby community, but then they got bought out by someone, and I think that someone who bought them out kind of just gutted the company. I don't even know if it's still a thing anymore. That's too bad. I did manage to hook up. I don't know if it's called hookup. I managed to send a Slack message in one of our team channels when we were deploying to our different branches, like develop staging and production. And that was really fun to look in the, what is it called? The config file? Mm Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. A lot of these tools are, you use a YAML configuration file to define the steps that it should take. And like, I guess to say a little bit more about what actually happens on them is basically like when I deploy to, or when I'm using GitHub Actions or CircleCI to run my tests, CircleCI is spinning up a Docker container on their end with all of my configuration options. So like if I went Ruby and Postgres and Redis and all and Elastic Search and all this other stuff, spins up a Docker container with all of that stuff inside of it. And then it executes my commands for my application, like, or my tests or, you know, whatever I'm running inside of that Docker container. And the goal is to get that as close to what your production state is as possible. And so that's why um, sometimes you'll hear like, oh, it, well, it worked on my machine, right? But that's why CI is great tool for catching some of that stuff before it hits your production server, because they're all, you're trying to have your CI basically match your production in terms of like what's like inside of that container. Hmm. So yeah, it's, I think, yeah, security is also like the one that like, I'm like, why aren't we adding in more security checks, right? Because they're free to add basically. Like, I mean, obviously you have runtime costs associated with using these CI tools. Like some of them are free or up until a certain point, but I like tools like Breakman, like just add it. Like it's, it's quite, it's quite, it's not very hard to add if you just do a little bit, especially if you already have a CI system set up. And I think if you're not doing that, you just should, you just should be. I also want to call, I saw a service called ruby.ci yesterday, which is like a very Ruby and Rails focused CI system where they actually have like some stuff built in out of the box, like setting up Breakman and RSpec and CodeCov and stuff like that. So Maybe check that one out for people who've never tried setting up CI before, because it appears to be very, very straightforward and kind of like beginner friendly, but I haven't tried it myself yet. I want to, I've heard, I asked about it on Twitter and everyone had good, good things to say about it. So. Cool. So aside from Breakman, what other security apps were you suggesting to install or download? If you're using GitHub Actions, there's this new thing called CodeQL, which is GitHub's own thing, which does a bunch of code scanning for and like outputs like static analysis, like a special static analysis format, which I don't want to get into all the nitty gritty of it, but basically it's analyzing your code without running it and trying to sp find spots that might open you up to security issues, just like Breakman. But I think it targets more than just Ruby, which is nice. Some of them are language agnostic. Those are the big ones I use. I know Sneak, it's it's pronounced Sneak, but it's spelled S-N-Y-K, is a, I think they're also a security scanning platform. I think they also do dependency security stuff. So like whenever you open a new PR to add a gem, it like analyzes that gem to make sure it's not malicious or that you didn't add the wrong, like sometimes there used to be like a, I think they, I think RubyGems like tries to make sure you can't do this, but if I create a gem called R-I-A-L-S instead of R-A-I-L-S. And then I put like a Bitcoin miner in it. Then you unsuspectingly might just have a mistype and install my malicious gem, right? So some of these tools will like spot things like that. There is something built into Ruby gems now. And if you had asked me this right before we started recording, I could have told you the name right off the top of my head, but it's diff end, I think is what it's called actually. 
And what it does is it used to be a separate tool, but now it's baked directly in when you bundle and install, you should, you probably will see something about it in your output provided you're on a recent bundler version. Uh, but what it does is tries to verify the security of like any gem updates that are occurring, like make sure there's no package takeovers, make sure there's no malicious code in them, make sure that I know, there's different types of attacks that have come out related to Ruby gems over the years that people can research into, but trying to just prevent, make sure that the gem you're trying to install is the gem that you are installing. Hmm. Well, there's so much information in this episode. I feel like I'm going to have to re-listen to this a few times. Yeah, I, I know it's not completely comprehensive and I mean, we could keep going, but we're running low on time, but I hope that's like kind of an introductory of like, I've heard this CI thing and we didn't really call, talk about the CD stuff. That's probably a whole nother, a whole nother episode, but they're often combined CI CD into one sentence. So that's why I said at the very beginning, but we ended up just talking about CI, but I hope that's a kind of a good introduction to people of like, I've heard about it, but I don't really, what it is like, what do you do in CI? Like, what's the purpose of it? And you know, what kind of thing can I do in it? And you know, what, what should I focus? Like if I'm creating a new rails app and it's my first rails app, like what should I be focused on? And like, like said, tests, lints, and security is what I would focus on before you get into like testing to make sure your all your tests are there covering the right code. And before you get into like the cool Slack messages and all that other stuff, like make run your tests, make sure that every time you push up a PR, your tests are getting run. Make sure that you're, and every time you merge the main that the tests are getting run and that you're scanning for security issues and that you're keeping the same, trying to keep the same format throughout your code. Because that's, that's also a big one. Like if I go look at someone's code and they're not using any sort of formatter, you can see inconsistencies in like the spacing and maybe the quotes. And it's just like, it kind of looks sloppy in my opinion. It's not sloppy technically because it also works. But like for me, when I'm reading from a, like a quality perspective, and especially when you think about maintainability over time, it's just very important to like be keeping consistent. And that's what a CI tool will do is enforce that. What's your stance on double versus single quotes? Double quotes. Next. <laughs> double quotes, because if I ever have to interpolate something, I have to go back and like change it to double quotes anyway. So it's like, why, like, if there's no cost, if there is a cost, I'm sure it's like a bit, <laughs> like a literal <laughs> bit of like cost. So it's just like, why would you not use them? I don't understand. It's kind of the same thing of like single, double, or the backticks in JavaScript. Like if you could just always use backticks, why not? You know, because it does mm -hmm. the same thing as the others, but you can also interpolate side of them. So that's kind of where I stand. Like, I don't want to be in the middle of writing code and then be like, oh, wait, I got to change my freaking quotes because now I need to add a variable. Like, it's just, why? That's a lot of time and brain space having to spend on figuring out which one to use. Yeah, I I always, but I go double quotes on everything. So JavaScript, Ruby, all of it. I use Prettier, which Prettier has a Ruby package made by our friend Kevin Newton. But last time I tried it, I didn't really, there was something about it I didn't like or it didn't work exactly for me. So maybe I'll have to go give that another try. But that's that was great when that kind of came out. It was like, oh, well, instead of having RuboCop or Standard or Reek or Flog or whatever for Ruby and then JavaScript is all handled with Prettier, I could have everything handled by Prettier. That would be really mm -hmm. nice, right? Mm-hmm. And we talked 
I'm just going to mention this. We talked a little bit before you asked about running these in like a, a before commit hook. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of tools that you could use like over commit or over commit, I think is a gem maybe, or maybe not, it's a gem, but it's a tool that will add like get hooks for you. Or the big one in JavaScript is Husky or in link commit, I think something like that, where basically every time you go do a commit, it will actually run these checks before actually committing the code versus like an after commit hook would run them after. And then the other one is like a lot of times like you can use VS code directly on like a, a format on save or whatever to like automatically run the linter. And you can set it to the big one I do, especially in a legacy code base is you can change it so that it only runs on modified code. So whenever I modify code, it only formats that versus like all the rest of the file that I Mm. haven't changed, which also has like linting issues in it. So I would use VS code for handling all that kind of automatic stuff as much as you can, because you can handle most of it with it. So after commit hooks are nice, but I kind of find them slow in the majority of cases. So I don't know. That's kind of my stand on that. Why would you use it after commit? Just so that like it commits and then runs the check. Maybe it's not after commit that I'm thinking about. Maybe it's maybe over, maybe that does it before commit as well. I'm not sure. It's basically just like I commit and then I want this thing to execute to inform me of if there's an issue. Maybe like a, I don't know if you can run a before push commit or some, or before push hook or something like that. But mm. basically just at some point in this workflow of you writing the code and then you putting the code into your branch of like checking it and either automatically formatting it because like tools like Husky and stuff can do that or just checking it and letting you know that there's issues. So I guess the checking you would do it, you could do it in an after commit if you're like, oh, I just want to know if there's any issues versus I want to actually perform like the auto fixing and stuff, which could can be a little slow depending on the code base and setup and stuff. Cool. Super helpful yeah. information. Thanks. Yeah. I think that's it for us, but I'm excited because I feel like we just kind of stumbled on a bunch of potentially new topic ideas. So I forgot you have, to tell you. Yeah. I was going to say you had something, <laughs> you had something to tell me. I have some news for you. Okay. We had performance reviews. Yeah. So I was an SE one before and now I'm an SE two. I'm not very hey. good at delivering news, but yeah. So I, I technically got promoted and I don't know if that still means I'm a junior developer or not, but I'm still going to call myself a junior developer for life. So I love that. Congratulations. That's huge. Look at us making <laughs> big moves. I mean, <laughs> I think you're a junior developer until someone else tells you you're not kind of right is what someone said to me one time. And I really kind of took that to heart. And so the other day I was on a call with Colin and he's talking about himself, like he's a junior developer. And I'm like, Hey, Colin, you're not a junior developer. And as someone with the title of senior, I'm going ahead and going to grant you permission right now <laughs> that you're not a junior developer anymore. And, but you can, I, I still think of myself as one. He still thinks of himself as one. You just said you think of yourself as one. You might always think that we have an episode of imposter syndrome that we're planning, but I think it's, it's kind of in the eyes of who the senior. So you're not a junior programmer. So Julie, <laughs> you are not a junior programmer anymore. Congratulations. <laughs> I'm granting you, I'm going to crown you right now. <laughs> I'm just going to start handing these out on Twitter if anyone wants one. So yeah, if you want your <laughs> senior approved, not a junior, hit me up. But that's it for us. So thank you everyone for listening. We'll catch you in the next one. Thanks everyone. Bye. Bye.